Psalm 126. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV. We'll have it on the screen as well. The title of the sermon is Remember What God Has Done. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that every passage in your word is is for the edification of your people. That you use every single verse to speak into our lives in a way that only you can. And so as we come to your word today, we, we don't leave all of our trouble at the door. We don't leave all of the world's problems at the door. We bring all those things to your word today. We just bring them all in here with us. We bring them right here and we, we sit before you and we say, God, thank you that you can speak to us today. I'm expectant that you will. Um, I pray that you would help me to not mess anything up, that you would anoint me. Thank you that you can take this same word and divide it up into a couple hundred different little pieces and speak it into each one of our hearts. And so we are thankful that you will do that today. We, in response, just say our ears are open, our hearts are open to receive whatever you have for each one of us individually and as a church corporately in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the the world, as you know, as Adam mentioned, you can't turn on the news without seeing the pain in our world. We look at our own lives and we recognize, man, there's there's struggle, right? There's there's pain, there's there's doubt, there's a lot going on. And the older you get, you know, and I think about us moving up here 18 years ago, I was like, everything is awesome, right? Like there's there's no everything was good, God's providing, and it's gonna be amazing. And then the older you get, like hard stuff starts happening. You're like, oh no, everything's not awesome. (laughs) And then the older you get, you're like, oh wow, there's a lot of like not awesome stuff in the world. And in my life, there's there's problems that are are going to arise. And some of it's brought on by ourselves, right? Our own sin, our own problems, our own decisions, bringing pain to ourselves, bringing pain to others. Some of it's brought on by the sin of others against us, right? We experience those things. It causes deep pain in us. And some of it's just because we live in this fallen world. Right? There is going to be tragedy. There's going to be difficulty. Until Jesus returns, things will not always be right and well in the world. But what if someone could take all of those things and make something beautiful out of them? What if God could actually bring good even out of something that appears to be evil in our own lives? Well, Psalm 126 is a proclamation that God can resurrect what is past and can give renewal and life to his people for a hopeful future. And so today I want to I look at God's faithfulness, um, but I don't want to just do that as like a corporate church. I want to help us do that as individuals so that when you find yourself in a place of difficulty, and we will all have seasons of difficulty, 
we can have some tools from the psalmist here, from Psalm 126, to help find our, our path forward. Psalm 126 shows us the way, and it starts with remembering God's faithfulness. Three things I want to mention today. The first one is remember God's faithfulness. This is what the psalmist is doing as he was writing this song. Let's read it again, the first three verses. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. Here he goes, remembering. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. And then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. He is remembering how God had delivered him and his people from Babylon. The Babylonian captivity was a terrible time for Israel. But it was also a necessary time. Because while it was a time of struggle, it was also a time of reckoning for Israel. They had to come to grips with their their own sin in their lives. Because they had allowed sin to steadily, slowly but steadily creep into their lives and as it does with all of us, when we let sin in our lives, it eventually pushes us away from God. It drives us away from God. And so they become a people far from God and eventually were taken into captivity in Babylon. But then they're there in Babylon and they come to their senses. They realize what they have done. They realize how far from God they become. They repent of their sin. They turn back to God. God forgives them. And then he delivers them out of their captivity, brings them back into their homeland. And this redemption was so good, and it was so thorough that it almost seemed too good to be true. And so the psalmist, as he remembers, he writes, man, we were like those who dreamed. In other words, is this real? Did God really do this? Was the restoration of God this good? Like somebody pinched me. Am I really awake right now, or is this a dream? Another way to say it is like, this could have never happened with human uh, wisdom. Only God could do something like this because it's a miracle. It's almost too good to be true. And yet, not everything that happens in this life is this wonderful, right? And this miraculous. Not every season is that wonderful and that miraculous. Uh, That's not the case for us. And that wasn't the case with Israel. In fact, at the time of this writing of this psalm, things were not wonderful in ancient Israel. Because although the psalmist finds himself recalling this wonderful time when God led them out of captivity, the writer gives us a clue as to his present circumstance and the present circumstance of his people in verses 4 and 5 when he says, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. He clues us in as to what's going on here. First, he says, restore our fortunes. In order to restore something, that means that it's it's been stolen, it's been lost, or it has been wasted. Something has been taken or given away. And then he says, like streams in the Negev. The Negev was this a name that was given to the southernmost part of Israel that literally means, the word means dry and parched. It was this land in which it would get so dry and parched that nothing would grow. And so uh, they'd have to wait for the winter rains to come and replenish the streams. Like the streams in the Negev. Please, God, we're so dry and parched. Restore the fortunes like 
the streams are restored in the Negev. And then he says this phrase, those who sow with tears. Why is he writing about sowing with tears? Well, his people are obviously mourning. His people are hurting. His people are brokenhearted at their present circumstances. When God brought us out of captivity, we were like those who dreamed. Our lives were prosperous. Our souls were alive and our hearts were full. But now our fortunes are gone. Our souls are dry like the Negev and our hearts are broken so much that we are shedding tears. Israel had repented while in Babylon, but it, and when they did, rather, their, their souls were refreshed. But like we all have a tendency to do, they had slowly again crept away from God. And with that backsliding, so came, their lack of, uh, so came a lack of communion with God. They began to backslide away from their communion with God. And, and with that, so left their vibrance, right? So left their joy and to the point where they felt parched, just like the Negev. The truth is that every child of God will have seasons of plenty where it's like, ha this is good, right? And then we will have seasons uh, that feel parched, like the Negev, seasons where we are vibrant and alive and seasons where um, we just can't see like hope in front of us. This is the, the rhythm of every believer. We've all experienced it. If you haven't yet, then I'm sorry, but it's coming. And so uh, what, what, what do we do? What do we do when we find ourselves in a season of drought, in a season of pain, in a season of doubt, in a season of stress or, or tension? When we're asking, like, will it ever be good and vibrant again? What do we do? Well, we do what the psalmist did. We remember God's faithfulness. We must remember God's faithfulness. How do we do this practically? Well, there's three words, all right? I want you to repeat them after me. The first one is proclaim. Just say proclaim. The second one is declare. Just say declare. And then say recall. We proclaim God's promises, we declare God's character, and we recall God's track record. You want to remember God's faithfulness? Proclaim, declare, and recall. This is what the psalmist is doing here. He is looking back at God's faithfulness and proclaiming the promises of God. He's declaring the character of God, and he is recalling the past track record of God. And so I would, I would just ask you simple questions like this. Church, has God saved you? Has, has he restored your soul? Has he been faithful to give you what you need? Not always what you want, but what you need. Then, then God's promise is true, right? Has he been a comforter to you when you've been downcast? Has he been an encourager to you when you've been downcast? Has he come through even when it wasn't your timing? okay. He said he would do those things, and so his character is true. He is who he said he would be. And as we proclaim his promise, as we declare his character, it causes us to recall then what he has done, his track record, right? And this reminds us who he was, and then therefore who he is and who he will be. Because if he's done it in the past, then we can be sure that he will be that way now and into the future. And when we do this, we don't just do it, 
but we do it with gratitude. We, we do it with thankfulness. And so we don't just say, yeah, God, you're good. We say, gosh, Lord, you've been good to me. Thank you, Lord, that you're good. God, I want to worship you because you're good. We don't just say, I, I remember, God, that you have been faithful. We say, wow, Lord, thank you for being faithful to me. And this is the, the heart that we see in the psalm here. He is uh, rejoicing. There is a heart of gratitude and thankfulness in him. I, I mentioned um, at the beginning here when I was giving a little update on Reality Ventura that there, uh, as, as Tim was coming on staff to take what had been my role, um, I felt like I needed to move over and, and stay on staff, but in a part-time role. And, and so we would tell the church this over the course of a couple of years in, during the transition, and we'd, and we'd use this phrase, as long as there's finances to do so, Dom is going to remain on staff in a part-time role. And we always put that caveat in there, as long as there's finances to do so, because we honestly didn't have money in the budget to add another pastor. There was no, there was no more money. And so we were just like hoping, trusting, like, we know God's doing this. Hopefully, we can keep Dom on staff in a part-time role. But the truth is, we literally didn't know. And the closer we got, the more we didn't know. <laughs> and so we would like, I'd stand before the church, and I'd give these updates, and I'd be like, yeah, as long as there's money to do so, I'm going to be remaining on staff in a part-time role. In the back of my mind, I'm like, there's no money to do so, right? But I kept it cool as I was sharing with the congregation. I was collected and calm. But I'd go home, and Emily and I would be like, Hey, so like, what are we going to do for money? <laughs> and, but I wouldn't do it with a smile. Like I would, I was actually very uh, nervous and scared about it. Um, and the older I've gotten and the bigger my kids have gotten and the more money they cost, the harder those types of seasons have been, right? Uh, like when we moved here, it's like our, our monthly nut was 2,500 bucks a month. If we just made 2,500 bucks, the whole, I can't even feed my family for 2,500 bucks a month now, right? <laughs> And so the older we've gotten and the bigger our kids, all of it's gotten bigger. And I honestly did not know what I was going to do for work. And that was a very scary season. And the closer it got, the scarier it got. And for a while, I let the anxiety grow and grow and grow to the point where it started becoming overwhelming. And I, I remembered this psalm and psalms like it. And I was like, oh, I got to do this. This is, I'm in the same exact place I've been so many times. Like 18 years ago, I had to do that. Six years ago, I had to do that. And then like 12 years ago, every few years, I got to do the same thing where God puts me in a situation where I don't know if he's going to provide. He knows he's going to provide. I don't know that he's going to provide. And here I am again, wondering if God's going to come through. And so I, I would go on bike rides in my town. Just dreadlock dude coming down the street talking out loud <laughs> to this person that nobody could see. And uh, I would ride down the street in this season last year, and I would just start at the beginning. I would just do Psalm 126. I would just, I would just proclaim. I would declare. I would recall. And so I'd, I'd start at the beginning. I'd be like, Lord, when I was a baby, I almost died, and then you saved my life. Okay, and then when I was three, my parents got to, well, I'm talking out loud, right? All the parents are taking their children, like, bringing them inside, like, here's the crazy dreadlock guy coming down the street again. <laughs> and then they got, my parents got divorced, and gosh, Lord, it was such a painful time, but you were there. You never left me. You used that to develop character in me. And then when I was 11 years old, I was in a painful 
abusive situation at my home. And God, you gave me wisdom to how to get out of that. And you actually used it to, to bring good in my life. And then, and then I got arrested when I was 16 years old and almost kicked out of school. But you actually used that to lead me to you. And, and then I got saved and I gave my life to you. My whole perspective changed. And then a couple years later, I met my wife. And I'm just like, I'm out loud, just talking to the Lord, right, as I'm riding my bike. And what I was doing, I just go through my life all the way to present day. And then we moved to carpet. I didn't have any money. I didn't have a job. I didn't have any savings. We didn't have a house. We just moved up here. And by the time we got here, we had everything. We had it all. God, you've been so faithful. And so I would just do this. I'd proclaim. I would declare and I would recall. And as I would do this, as I would do this, you know what happened? Hope would be restored in my, my soul, right? Expectation would be restored in my soul. I'm in the Negev right now, Lord. I don't see any fruit on the vine. The streams are dry. But as I look back in my life, I remember, oh, yeah, look what you did then. If that's who you were then, then that's who you will always be. You might be here today like, that's cute, Dom. Like, yeah, it's sweet when you, like, remember and you have those stories to pull on. But, dude, honestly, like, I'm in the middle of it right now, and I don't even have the energy to look back, all I have is tears. That's it. That's all I can do right now. All I have is pain. What do I do? Well, the psalmist speaks to you too. Second thing I want to bring up here is that we sow with tears. He says, sow your tears. Sow your tears. I love how honest he's being about his situation. He's doing this old practice called lamenting, which is not just you cry, but it's actually a process of like you state the problem and then you, you ask God to fix it and then you declare his promise, right? It's this process. He's lamenting here. He's like, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. We have lost our sense and our practice of lament. We don't even know how to do this. Some of us have never been taught that this is okay. And so what happens is many of us just try to avoid the pain altogether. We're like, man, I'm a believer. I shouldn't be experiencing this kind of like sorrow in my life. And so we try to avoid it. We try to push it down and we try to pretend that it's not there altogether. But Psalm 126 teaches us that there's a different way to view our pain. There's a different way to view our tears. When the child of God sheds tears, he says that our tears are actually seeds that are sowing something joyful that will come in the future. That's good, right? Because I don't know about you, but if I had a choice whether to shed or sow tears, I want to sow tears. I want to sow tears. How do we do that? Well, it starts with being okay with having the tears in the first place. The psalmist is not afraid to acknowledge that he and his people are weeping right now. Because here's the deal. Those who trust in Christ will not sorrow to the point of despair because those who despair have no hope. But those who trust in Christ will sorrow. We will sorrow in this life. And when we do, there's a couple things that we have to remember. When you are in sorrow, in pain, in doubt, There's a couple of things you have to remember. First of all, you need to remember that just because it's painful doesn't mean it's not fruitful. Anybody who's ever exercised knows this to be true. 
You go on a run that's longer than you've ever ran and you start to feel some pain in your lungs. But isn't it fruitful? Because the pain you're experiencing is actually your lungs expanding beyond their capacity to hold air. They had a previous capacity. Now they're expanding to hold even more air so that you can actually go further and longer. When you wake up after a a good day in the gym and you're sore, it's painful. But you actually know, oh, whoa, that was a litmus test. I actually did some good work yesterday. And that pain from the work yesterday is actually going to cause fruit in me today. Just because something hurts you doesn't automatically mean that it's bad for you. In fact, Romans 5 says that we actually glory in our sufferings because we know that the suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character and character hope. The suffering for the Christian always produces something. I have this tattoo on my arm, which I'm not one of those guys that just like goes under the pain of tattoo just because for fun. Like I go somewhere and I'm like, Portland, yay, I'm going to get a Portland tattoo. Like I don't don't do these things. But after our, uh, we had a baby who who died after just a day. His name was Nehemiah. And um, the pain of that loss was so, uh, so extreme. And yet so fruitful in my life that I had to get something permanent to remind myself of all the work that that pain did. And so I have this huge tattoo of these 22 elements on my arm of these life-changing lessons that I learned from the excruciating pain of losing our baby boy. I am not thankful that our son Nehemiah died, but I have come to the place where I am thankful for the pain that it caused because I've seen the fruit of it. And I, I, think, I think the truth is I couldn't have gotten those results in my life anywhere else. And I think that's what James is getting to in James 1 when he says, so then consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete not lacking anything. How do you get to the place where you consider the trial joy? It's not some weird, twisted, like, oh, I love pain. That's not what he's saying. Nobody's like, that's weird. Don't do that. Nobody's like, I love the pain. No, he says, I consider joy in the pain because I know what's coming later. I know what the pain is going to do in me, and so I can consider it joy. Jesus, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the pain. The pain was painful. He didn't find joy in the pain, but he knew that there was joy after the pain. And because of the pain of the cross, there would be joy on the other side. And so it is with us. Because of the pain of the trial, so it will produce something in us that will actually cause joy. It's so good. The, pr- the production of what's going to happen there is so good that it can actually produce joy in us so much so that we can actually consider it pure joy when we're in the midst of the trial. Your present suffering may be painful, but that doesn't mean that it's not fruitful. In the same way, when your circumstances change from good to, to bad, just because life is not good, you got to remember, just because life is not good, it does not mean that God is not good. 
Let me say it again. Just because life is not good, it does not mean that God is not good. Just because your circumstance changed for the worse does not mean that God's character changed for the worse because God's character doesn't change. We've all been here, right? Most of us at least, where you get through the thing that's difficult, where you're wondering if God's going to come through. You get to the other side of it and you look back and you're like, wow, you were faithful. Oh my gosh, I couldn't see you, but there you were. So faithful. It's easy to do when you get to the other side. But how many of you know that once you're in the middle of it, you don't always see the clearest. Your, your vision is impaired. It's difficult to see what God is doing. And when that happens, we have a tendency to make a meaning about God based on our circumstances. Let me say that again because I might be giving some language to what you're doing right now in your life. When we're in the middle of a painful, tension situation, tense situation, we have a tendency to make a meaning about God based on our present difficult situation. But the truth is, even if we don't see it, we're just saying it, even if we don't see it, he's moving. Even when we don't feel it, he's moving. God, I don't understand how you're going to work this out for my good. And so we say, well, maybe he's just not working it out for my good. This is the tendency we have to do. God, I don't see your promise in the middle of this. Therefore, maybe that promise isn't true. God, I don't, I don't see you working. I don't see you being good in this situation. Therefore, maybe you're not good. Or even, I know you're good. Maybe you're just not good to me. Lord, I know you love me, but maybe you just don't love me. Or maybe you just don't love me right now. We find ourselves in a situation, and what happens is we try to reinterpret God's character based on our situation. We allow our circumstances to dictate what we think is and isn't true about God, but this is, this is dangerous, and it's backwards. If you don't hear anything else, hear this. You do not interpret God's character based on your circumstances. You interpret your circumstances based on God's character. And so when there is a discrepancy and you can't figure out how God's character fits into your present difficult circumstance, you don't say, okay, I must have been wrong about God's character. You say, I must be viewing my circumstance wrong. What do I need to change about the way I'm seeing my circumstance so that it fits in line with God's character? Not the other way around because God's character is the one thing that changes. That is the perfect, steady thing. Our ability to interpret their situation is not perfect. God's character is perfect. That's the steady thing that always stays the same. So everything else needs to come in light of that and, and be interpreted in light of that. We know what God has said about himself. So that is what we bank on. Now, to be fair, this is easier to preach than it is to do. Right? I've been there, you've been there, we've been there, which means that sometimes it's just going to require some faith. You may not be feeling it yet. Sometimes you have to say, okay, God, I, I know that you said you're going to be faithful to me. I don't see what appears to be faithfulness right now, but I'm going to bank on the fact that you said it, and I'm going to go with that. Lord, I don't feel your love right now, but you said you love me. And so I'm going to bank on that. That requires faith. That requires some faith. Because even if we 
can't see it, we have to know that he's working even while we're waiting. Which means we also have to remember that sanctification is a process. From the moment you're saved, you're on this journey to become more like Jesus. You know Jesus is perfect, right? All the not perfect people in the room, can you just say not perfect? Okay, that means if we're on a journey from not perfect to being like Jesus, who is perfect, that's going to take a little time. Somebody say some time, right? It's going to take, she said lots of time. It's going to take some time on this journey. Sanctification is a process, but here's the hard reality. Part of that process is pain. Part of that process is pain. God gets no pleasure out of pain, right? He didn't design the world with pain in it. We did that. We brought in pain. God doesn't send pain to us, but we're going to have pain in this world. He gets no pleasure out of that, and yet in all of his ridiculous wisdom, he somehow uses even the most painful things in life to produce something beautiful in us. He can even take things that Satan meant for evil and turn them for good, like it says in Genesis 50. This is what he does. This is who he is. And miraculously, I think that the most beautiful things that he makes actually often come out of the absolute worst situations. There's no diamond without the pressure, right? There's, there's no pure gold without the fire. There's no spring without the winter first. And there's no glory without some pain, which means that maybe we can change the way we think about suffering. Because there's also this, often this false expectation that God is uh, wanting to just never allow pain in our lives. And yet I look at it and I'm like, I don't get it, but God uses the pain. Like, look, this uses the pain to make something beautiful that I couldn't have gotten here without this. How does God do that? How does God do that? And so maybe I, st- I need to stop asking, God, can you get me out of this? And maybe I need to start asking, God, what can I get out of this? Is there something that I'm supposed to get out of this? Show me what it is, God, so that I can also consider it pure joy because I know that there's something good coming in the end. We all love the season of a blessing and right? We all love it. We all love it. But while we wait for it, we can remember that God is working in the waiting. Now, there are some situations that are so evil that I do believe it is always God's will to deliver people from those situations. And we must pray to that end. But there are many situations in life that I think God actually allows us to to be in, because he knows it's not going to kill us. He knows it's actually going to produce in us something better and make us more like Jesus. And it's in those times when we got to ask that question, Lord, what are you doing? What what should I be getting out of this? Is it going to hurt? Yeah. Is there going to be some tears? Yeah, you're probably going to shed a lot of them. But when you shed those tears, you can remember God's faithfulness. And when you remember God's faithfulness, you can realize, oh, wow, I'm not just shedding these. I'm actually sowing these. And what's beautiful about sowing, when you shed, they just fall done. When you sow, it actually produces something, right? All sowing actually produces some kind of reaping, which is the last thing I'll mention, and it'll be quick. The third thing we do from this psalm is we look to the future with hopeful expectation. 
Just like the sower sows a seed, they are looking to the future. They know what is coming. They know that there will be some kind of reaping. Whenever you sow, there's always going to be a reaping. And so we look to the future with hopeful expectation. Verse 5, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. God's past track record is our future assurance. The psalmist could declare this promise of the future because he knew how, who God had been in the past. The reason that we must declare God's promises and his character and recall his track record is because it reminds us what he will do now and in the future. And so then we get to look with expectation, not just wondering, I wonder what's going to happen, but oh, remember what he did? Ah, I know the kind of thing that God's going to do in the future. We get to expect it. Psalm 126 was written because ancient Israel had this practice of doing this. They knew they could look at the salvific interventions of God in the past to give them hope for the future. And isn't this even what Paul does in the New Testament? When he says in Romans 8, 32, he who did not spare his own son, he's looking back, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things right now? Look what God has done in Jesus. So then right now, how will God not be the same to you right now in this moment? And so I would just say to you this morning, Reality Carp, if, if God has given you so much in Christ, how could you not think that he will give you everything that you need when you need it in whatever situation, whatever form that comes in? So I'll just encourage you with this. If you're in a season of pain or suffering or doubt, know that that season and those tears can actually be a season of sowing if you and when you remember what God has done. You remember his faithfulness. Just like this promise was a promise for Israel, so it can be a promise for us today that those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Notice that it does not say those who sow with tears might reap with songs of joy. It says those who sow with tears will reap. In fact, let's just read it together. That bottom sentence right there. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Y'all didn't say it like you mean it, so I'm going to do it again. Let's do it again. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow in your life. I, I don't know what's going to happen next year, next month. But I do know this. This is the only thing I can bank on when I think about the future. I, I do know that there's coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. And there will be no more sorrow or pain or division or broken relationships or betrayal, or temptation. There will be no more dying, and there will be no more death. We may find ourselves in a, a night of sorrow, but joy comes in the morning. I don't know when that morning is. I don't know if you'll see it in this life or not, but I do know that there's a, a morning, not M-O-U, M-O-R, a morning, a sunrise that's coming when Jesus returns and makes all things right. 
Weeping may last for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we are mindful of how you sent your son to deliver us from the eternal pit of despair and to bring us into your family, um, to give us a hopeful eternal future. We are mindful of the sacrifice that you made, Jesus. We are mindful of the fact that you have not judged us according to our sin. But you have been merciful to us because of the cross and we are so thankful. And so we ask that right now our hearts would be filled with gratitude as we remember what you have done for us in the cross. We also ask now that you would Remind us of what you've done even in our own individual lives. What you've done in our own families, what you've done in our own hearts. The growth that has come because of the pain even. The ways that you have met our needs, our our physical needs and emotional needs and relational needs and all the, the things. The ways that you have delivered us from destruction even destruction that we were bringing in our own lives. We just want to look back now. We want, to, we want to take this time and we just want to say, wow, Lord, thank you. What amazing love it is. What amazing grace you have had toward us. We just want to bask in that. And we ask that as we do that, that hope would indeed arise, that hopeful expectation would rise up in our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name.